The text for this morning's sermon is Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's pray. Father, I ask that... (laughs) Father, I ask that. Uh, I don't see Father in your context. What is your Father's first and last? Okay, Siri, I'm talking to God, not to you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Father, I ask that <clears throat> you would help us this morning. The text before us is really simple, a child could understand it. And yet, it's the battle of our lives to really believe what this means. To really believe it can be true for us. So Lord, I pray that you help us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the song we just saying, here in the power of Christ I stand. It takes power to stand in the presence of a holy God. This morning, there's a battle raging in this room. It's a glory battle. All of you came in to church this morning with a battle that never leaves you. That's why I know you brought it with you. It's a battle for glory and it's a battle for happiness. Every person in this room is seeking happiness. It's a fact. Everyone is seeking the greatest possible happiness they could ever have. Some here were seeking to find it in a relationship with someone else. Whether it's a friend or a spouse, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend. In relation to other people, some are here this morning seeking happiness and hoping to find it in a relationship with another person. Others come to church this morning believing that happiness might be found in material things. That glory, that, that true satisfaction may be found in material things or physical pleasures. Others believe that happiness might be found in a sort of drug which takes us out of the pain of this world. Anyone who uses a drug or overeats with food, is seeking happiness, is seeking some sort of respite. Even the person who is contemplating suicide is desperately seeking after happiness. Yes, it's a lie, that it's found in ending your life, but it is what you're seeking. And there's a glory battle 
Because the Bible says happiness is found in one person, in one place in relation to that person, and it's in the presence of God. And the battle that's here this morning is a battle of faith. It's not so much a battle of knowledge, because I'm going to tell you where it's found. But the battle is in believing it, not just this morning, but when you go home today and tomorrow, and it's the battle of the rest of your life. Let me tell you where Scripture says, where God says happiness is found. You see, the Creator knows. He doesn't leave it as a mystery to us. Psalm 16, 1. The psalmist says, Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. There is no goodness outside of You. And then in verse 5, The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And then in verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. Now get this. In Your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You came seeking happiness. God's Word says that that happiness, that fullness of joy is found in God's presence. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of man take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's when you're in His presence, when He can spread His wings out is the metaphor, like a bird would spread her wings out to protect her chicks. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. When you're in God's house, you get to drink delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Only in the presence of God will you ever see true light. Psalm 27.4 One thing I've asked of the Lord. You want to know what David's one prayer, if he could sum his whole wanting up into one prayer, here's what David says. One thing I've asked of the Lord that that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So that one prayer, if I can dwell in your house, if I can look on your beauty, and, and I love this, and inquire in His temple. As I look at the universe, how huge it is, and to know that God spoke it in a minute, to be able to inquire in His presence about these glories that are put on display, How about Psalm 73, verse 23? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Now listen how wise the the psalmist is. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You want to know the worst place to be? 
outside the presence of God. For those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. All of us are desperately seeking after happiness. Sometimes you may go to where it's at. Maybe more often than not, you'll seek where it is not. Seeking down a highway where there is no joy at the end of it. All of us are searching for happiness and identity. We don't know who we are apart from our relation to our Creator. People running all over this earth trying to figure out what life is all about. What's their purpose? What's their cause? Why am I even going to this job over and over and over and over and over again? Maybe it's to get some money because maybe happiness is found when I'm in a successful job and I have a spouse and I have children. Wrong. That's not where happiness is found. Even an atheist doesn't know who he is apart from his standing with the Lord. He doesn't even know how to define himself except in relation to what he doesn't believe about God. So, here's the problem. We know where happiness is found. I just told you. It's in the presence of God, but there's one monstrous problem. Sin. Because of sin, death has come upon us. You want to know what the def definition of death is? Separation. Physical death, it's the separation of the soul from the body. It's separation. But physical death isn't the worst thing. That's horrible. But the worst is how sin separates us from our Creator, from fellowship with our Creator. You remember in Genesis 2.17, God tells Adam that in the day he eats the forbidden fruit, he'll surely die. Adam doesn't die physically right away. The process of death begins. Physical death in humankind. Man wasn't going to die before sin. But man sins. Physical death is set in process. But immediately, in the moment of that sin, spiritual death took place. That's why we see right away Adam and Eve hiding from God. The joy of their life was stolen as sin has separated them from their Creator. And so they're hiding. And as you know, at the end of Genesis 3, in verse 24, God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden where they experience this presence with Him. He drove them out so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life and continue on forever without a relationship with Him. In love, He drew, drove them out of His presence. In love, He made the ground produce thorns so that everywhere they look, they're reminded that my relationship with God is broken. This morning, I get a message from my mom to pray for my aunt, who most of you probably don't know, but 
she has cancer. I get a call this morning, a text from Bob Babcock that Tammy's father, had. they lost him for a couple minutes last night and they brought him back after they did CPR on him. In Watertown, he has pneumonia. We get a prayer request from Linda Mardian for her friend who's sick in Sioux Falls and also her other friend whose husband just died in a snowmobile accident. In one morning, this, this one who died has three children. Everywhere we look, flashing red lights saying, this thing is broken. It's not right. Which ought to make us ask the question, why is this not right? And when we go to the Scripture, we find out that it's because of sin. And God in His love cursed this earth so that we would wake up and look for hope in God. Isaiah 59.2 tells us our dilemma. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins has hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Because God is a holy God and He's righteous and He's a good judge and He's pure beyond what we can imagine, we cannot experience the privilege to stand in His presence as sinners. That's the problem. Sin has separated us. Listen to Psalm 5.4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. I'm in trouble. How many times have I boasted in arrogance? You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 97.2 Clouds and thick darkness are around Him. Are around God righteousness and justice are the foundations of His throne. <laughs> if he's, How many criminals are looking for a policeman? Not very many. Here's what it's like in the presence of God. God's throne is surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. Righteousness and justice are on His throne. Are you looking for justice? You want to go before the, that judge? I don't know if you remember, but when we went through 1 Samuel and Eli was pleading with his wicked sons to turn from their wicked ways, here's how he argued. He said... Uh, if someone, this is 1 Samuel 2.25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And also in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, you remember when the Israelites finally got the Ark of the Covenant back? which is the place that represents the presence of God. Oh, this is a good thing. God's presence is coming into our midst. And what we read in verse 19 of chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God, into whom shall He go up away from us? They understood the problem. 
when sinners come into the presence of the holy God, they die. Where can we send this ark, the presence of God, away from us? Or how about Psalm 33, 13? The Lord looks down from heaven and He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes observes their deeds. How about that? God's looking down. He sees everything that we do. This is a problem for us. Psalm 119.86 All Your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. As God gives us His law, we're shown to be utterly sinful. Listen to Job 41. I love how Job describes things so vividly. He's talking about the Leviathan. Some people think this is a dinosaur. Other people think it's a rhinoceros. It's a huge beast. And Job is sitting here asking, who can contain this beast? Who can handle this animal that God created? In verse 7, he says, Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle and you'll not do it again. You go try to put a harpoon in this Leviathan and you'll remember this battle. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? See what God's saying? If you can't stand before one of the beasts, one of the most fierce beasts I've created, how in the world are you going to stand in my presence? Are you feeling the problem? Where's happiness found? In the presence of God. And yet, our problem of sin separates us. Job says this. The book of Job tells us that there was not a more righteous man on the face of the earth. You are not better than him, trust me. The most righteous man who ever lived, here's one of the things he said. Job 9.28 I became afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Job says, even though I may be the righteous man on the face of the earth, I'm going to be condemned. Why do I even work? Why do, we even, why do I even labor anymore? And then he says, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you'll plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. He's saying, my sin is so bad that anything I put on gets dirty. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that I should come to try that that we should come to trial together. And here's what he says, there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He's saying, I can't stand before him. He's the holy God. I have sin in my life. There's no one who can stand between God and me to help. And then we get these weird psalms that seem to contradict themselves. Let me give you an example of one. Psalm 99.8 Our Lord 
are, O Lord, our God, You answered them. You answered Israel. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. You, you feel the tension, the contradiction there? Let me read it again. O Lord our God, You answered Israel. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. I forgive Israel, but I punish Israel for their sins. Or how about Proverbs 17.15? He who justifies the wicked... So there's a judge, and he looks at the wicked and he says, not guilty. He who justifies the wicked and the one who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination before the Lord. So here's our problem. We're wicked, and if God were to call us not guilty, it would be an abomination before God. And if God were to call someone who is righteous guilty, it would be an abomination. All this introduction, hopefully, to get you and I to feel something of the weight of what this text is going to tell us. This text is going to tell us how you a sinful human being and myself can stand in the presence of God. And we ought to just rejoice as we realize these truths. The natural response of man after he's sinned is to justify himself. What you will do when you sin is you'll say something like this to God. God, I'm not going to do that again. That's a dumb thing to say, by the way. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to do better next time. And plus, I'm going to go do this work and that work. Well, that seems pretty natural, right? If, if someone breaks the law, the judge finds them, maybe gives them a little punishment, and then gives them some community service. Go make it right. Go fix your wrong. This is natural to us. If your boss is upset with some of the work that you're doing, what do you do? You work harder and better, hopefully. You try to justify yourself. You try to redeem yourself. The natural thing to do is to work for our salvation. Now, as we come to this text, remember what's going on. Paul has went on his first missionary journey. And he went up through the southern part of uh, Galatia and he was preaching the Gospel in this Gentile territory and churches were being birthed. People were trusting in Christ. So brand new churches were beginning. As he got to about the third city, the Jews were upset that Paul was telling the Gentiles they could be saved apart from the works of the law, that they didn't have to be circumcised, they just had to trust in Christ by faith. And so they began to follow him and hound him to the point where they end up stoning him to what everyone thought was to death. They drag him out of the city. He comes back to... And what does he do? You think he would just head home. That was kind of a rough missionary journey. He goes back through the places where these persecutors came from to those believers and he told them to stand strong, to not leave the faith. And he gets back to Antioch and what does he hear? Well, false teachers, these Judaizers, have come in and they've been teaching a different gospel They've been tempting them to try to work their way to God by following the Jewish laws. That's why he wrote this letter to the Galatians. And they attacked him in the two ways. They said, 
Paul got his gospel from the apostles and then he twisted it. And Paul's been showing how, no, I didn't get the gospel from them. God gave me this gospel. And in fact, I even corrected Peter when he was preaching it wrongly. That's what we looked at last week, right? Peter is eating with Gentiles, those who aren't Jews. A Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. And Peter is eating with them, which for the Jews, what would they be thinking? How can Peter defile himself in this way? How can he, as he eats this food with the Gentiles, and he, he's not even eating the right diet that the law required, he is uh, sinning against God. So, James sends some guys up to see Peter. As soon as Peter sees them, he gets afraid that they're going to be upset that he's eating with them. So what does he do? He quits eating with these new Gentile either brothers or, or potential converts. And he says, no, I can't eat with them anymore. And Paul confronts him if you remember last week in verse 14, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul's saying, Peter, what are you doing? You don't live like the Jews anymore. So how can you force these new believers to live like the Jews? You know better. And then that brings us to our verses today. Verse 15. I think he's still talking to Peter. And most commentators do as well. But in the ESV, you see the quotes in in verse 14. In the original Greek, we don't have quotation marks, so we don't know for sure. But most people think that he's continuing talking about this confrontation with Peter in our text. And here's what he says in verse 15. We ourselves, so Peter, you and I, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now let me define a couple terms before we unpack this. Justify. What does Paul mean when he says justified? What he means is to be declared righteous in God's law court. The Bible tells us every man will face God on judgment day. And so when Paul is talking about someone being justified in the presence of God, it means that they come before this judgment and God looks at them and says, righteous, not guilty. So that's what he means when he says justify. He's talking about a legal declaration by God. And the other uh, set of terms I want to I want us to understand what that means is works of the law. What does Paul mean when he says works of the law? I think what he means is the works of the law are being obedient to the law of Moses that's been handed down to the Jews. And so when Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, being obedient to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let me paraphrase it in my own words. I think here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Peter, we were both born Jews. We weren't Gentiles. We were born Jews. And yet, in verse 16, notice the yet there, yet, he says, we know something. 
We were born Jews, but we know something, unlike other Jews and apparently the Judaizers, we know that a person is never going to be accepted by God and declared righteous because he obeys the whole law by being circumcised and eating the right foods and so on and so on. He's saying, we're born Jewish, and yet we knew that being born Jewish and trying to be obedient to the law was never going to get us to the point where God says, not guilty. He's saying, come on, Peter. Think for a minute. And he says, but rather, we know that a person will be accepted by God because he clings to Jesus by faith. That's my paraphrase. Peter, you know no one's going to be found not guilty by being good enough in their own works, by following the law. But you know that the only way someone's going to stand that way is if he clings by faith to Jesus. So, he gets rather redundant. Still my paraphrase phrase. So we did what any sane person would do. In a sense, he's saying, Peter, remember? We put our trust in Jesus because we want to stand right before God and we know that, and we knew that we could never stand right before God by keeping His law good enough. Peter's saying, remember, we came to our senses. We realized what true good news is. That a person is saved by faith in Christ and not by their own goods works. Peter, you are living as though being right with God is by living in accordance to the Jewish law. That's the message he's given to the Gentiles. He starts living in such a way which is saying, unless you're circumcised, unless you eat these foods, unless you obey the law, you will not be saved. So Paul rebukes him. Paul's saying, you know better. So get this. I know most of you know better. But if Peter, who knows better, can live contradictory to what he knows, because he's not living by faith anymore, but he's living by fear of man, by human wisdom, then you can do it and I can do it as well. So there's three things I want to ask you to stop doing in light of this text. Number one, stop trying to do the impossible and trust God for whom all things are possible. Stop trying to do what is impossible. Remember what Job says? He says, why do I even labor on anymore? How am I going to contend with God? Don't you kind of lose hope if you have an impossible task? You would lose hope in your labor. It's impossible to put harpoons into this beast and contain him. How much more impossible is it to contend with God? So, Remember what Job says, Behold, the hope of a man is false. Stop it. Stop believing you can do it. You can't do the impossible. You can't make yourself stand before a holy God. There's nothing you can do to bribe God to pardon you. There's nothing you can do because justice has already bent the bow of God against you. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He's bent and readied his bow. He has prepared him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. You probably heard the hope in there, unless he repents. But you cannot earn 
God's love. You cannot suffer long enough to satisfy the punishment for your sins. That's why hell is eternal. There's a whole lot of people not concerned about hell because they say God would never do that. God would never punish someone for all eternity. Problem is, is God is just. And if you sin against an eternal God, you have to pay for all eternity. You can't go to purgatory for 100 years and then pay $2,000 because you've sinned against an eternal God. Stop trying to do the impossible. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 130. Here's what you should do. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your eyes be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him there is plentiful redemption. He will, will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Here's what you do. You hope in the God for whom all things are possible. See, this psalmist didn't know who Jesus was, but he knew in God's Word that hope and forgiveness came from taking refuge and trusting in God. Stop trying to make yourself right before God by being good enough or obedient enough. You'll never do it. You'll just get more frustrated and you'll lose more joy. Second, stop turning the good news into bad news. Peter did it. Peter flipped the Gospel on its head in a matter of a moment. He turned the grace of Christ into works in a moment. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time picking on other denominations because they're not here, you are. But I'll point them out just as example. Look how many Christian churches out there have made the grace of Jesus Christ into a works righteousness system that you have to do A, B, C, and D just the right way, and then you might get in, you just might have to wait a while. It's making Judaism out of Christianity. And we can sit here all day and pick on these denominations, but that would be foolish because you and I do the same thing. How do we do the same thing? How many of you, if I were to start speaking about prayer, and I were to start speaking about devotional life, most of your heads would go down like this. You know why? Because you're not believing the Gospel. You know what devotions are about? Pleasures forevermore in the presence of God. But your head goes down because you've turned devotions into a works righteousness where you try to please God. And if I were to preach on prayer, you would be ashamed because rather than looking at prayer as coming into the presence of God and speaking with God, You've turned it into a works righteousness where you're not meeting the mark. You're not praying enough. Don't we do this? We enter Christianity by grace and then we turn it into a little Judaism system. And we wonder why we don't want to do our devotions. We wonder why we don't want to read our Bible. You know why? Because you missed your Bible reading plan the last three days and it makes you feel guilty now when you get back into it. It's because you made it into the law rather than the opportunity to meet in the presence of God. We can do the same thing Peter did, and I'm telling you today to knock it off. Stop making good news into bad news. 
And here's why. Fear paralyzes us. A broken relationship paralyzes us. Have you ever, have you ever had it where someone important to you is upset with you and you're trying to do a job and you can't even do it because you're just totally paralyzed with this broken relationship over here? Or have you ever done something where you know it's wrong and you're worried about judgment coming? And you're trying to do your daily tasks, but you can't even do it. You can't even function because you're afraid. When we turn the gospel into law, your labor, you're paralyzed. You're paralyzed in what you can do. But here's the beauty. God's loving presence, if you know the love of Christ and Jesus uh, and His love demonstrated for you on the cross, it frees you to live. It frees you to work. It frees you to labor because you're not doing it to earn a right place with God. Tom Schreiner, one of my professors, says this, the new life is not characterized fundamentally by working for God, but by living or by believing in the Son. Here's what it means to be a Christian. Not so much you go work for God, but rather you believe in the Son's work on your behalf. You want to know what the fruit of that is? Fruitful labor. That's what comes out of it, but you'll be paralyzed if you get that backwards. I'm going to show you this in Ephesians 2 real quickly. Verse 5. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. When you were ugly and nasty and sinful, Christ died for you. You were saved not when you were good enough. For by grace you've been saved, and you raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Here's where He's trying to help us see the joy in Christ. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For There's endless riches for you in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not by works. It's by grace. And then the very next verse says this. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You know what for? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You, know, you want to know why Jesus saved you by grace? So that you could quit trying to earn your place before God with Him, and then you're freed up to live in the love of God and work not to earn a place with Him, but because you love Him. You don't have to live out of guilt for every little thing you've done wrong. You'll never do anything perfect, by the way. So it's a never-ending guilt unless you begin to see Christ and His righteousness. And then thirdly, stop working and start believing. The new life is in believing in His Son. You see, Peter's failure, it was a faith problem. He saw the fear of man in front of him and rather believe in His resurrected Savior he feared man. It was, a, it was a faith battle. Your life will be lived. The toughest thing you'll do is believe the gospel. That God can actually forgive you. Most of us are in here to say, tell everyone else, God can forgive you. It's really hard to believe God can forgive me. And so we get into works righteousness. Stop working and start believing. Christians, never forget how you will stand in His holy presence and experience the fullness of joy in His pleasures forevermore. Not by works, but by faith in Jesus. Because God's joy is appropriated through faith in Jesus, I want us to consider what else, would you, what else would you do than try to live by faith in Christ? That's where the joy 
is going to come from. Here's how Jude ends his letter, and this is what we're going to end with. It's a benediction. This is shocking. Jude 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. He is able to do what seems impossible. He can make Sam Ellison, the rottenest sinner, stand up on Judgment Day in the presence of God. And God can look at me and say, Sam, because you trusted by faith in Christ, you're righteous. You have His righteousness, not guilty. We're going to see in a few chapters here, we're adopted right into the family of God. That's where happiness is found. Now as we prepare to sing this next song, this is one of the most beautiful songs because it's us singing about how we always fail. And Christ being put forth as the Savior who never failed. You know why I know I feel so good to sing this song? Because it's true. Feel so much better than singing this song. I'm not going to sing it. Oh, how I love Jesus, you know? It's not that great singing about how great my love is. But to sing about all the times I fail, but I am declared righteous because I trusted in Jesus by faith. My hope is that you'll quit chasing joy in places there is no joy and you would seek joy in the presence of God through the gospel of Christ. Father, thank you for this good news. Lord, let it never become so familiar to us that we quit being awed by the amazing grace you showed us, Lord, in, in Him. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.